standing in the garden just think think of what we're starting i've been waiting for this day all my life you be dressed up in your finest you about to spend the better part of two months talking about love and human relationships. We'll be digging into a book that details the sexual awakening of a young couple. Hardly appropriate for a Sunday morning, is it? Well, we disagree. Songs is a book of love in a world created by a God of love. When it comes to the message of human love, the church has lost her voice. We've stayed quiet and the world has monopolized the message. If we don't talk about it here, then where? If we don't talk about it now, then when? The world isn't silent on human love. The Bible isn't silent on human love. So we will not be silent either. Amen. Good morning uh, to you all. Welcome to Central. My name is uh, Craig, if you're a guest of ours, and we are in week number three of our series, Naked and Unashamed. And my message uh, titled today is In Body and Being Beautiful. It's drawn from Songs chapter one, picking up from verse five, where Brad left off last week at verse four. So let's jump straight in. If you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to Songs chapter one. If you haven't got a copy of the Scriptures and would like one, our ushers are coming down the aisles now, and all you need to do is raise your hands in the air, and they will give you a copy of the Scriptures. And when you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can then turn to page 672, 672, and uh, then we will be able to uh, will be able to follow along with us. So 672 and Songs chapter 1, beginning from verse 5. And this is what the text says. Dark am I yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedah, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, whom, you whom I love, where you gaze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know most beautiful of women, Follow the tracks of the sheep and gaze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. 
While the king was at the table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are, doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is vedant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. No, chapter 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. And all of you are thinking, what on earth have we just read? As we said in week number one, this is ancient Hebrew love poetry written about 3,000 years ago, celebrating the wonder and the beauty of love. Commentators recognize that in its original context, they took us back to the Garden of Eden, where love, human love, was considered to be a great thing. It takes us back, this poem, to Eros, human love, which should be experienced both naked and unashamed. It is Eros without shame. Last week, Brad picked up and showed how the book begins with the wedding ceremony. It begins with this idea of you may kiss the bride. And so what we have in this section of the text, then from verse 5, is the couple's journey to the honeymoon suite and the conversation that ensues. The couple's journey to the wedding chamber and them kind of getting themselves emotionally ready to consummate the marriage. Commentators are in no doubt at all that there is the expression of human love and physical the consummation of the marriage in the book. The only question is, where does it take place? As we understand this book, it begins with a ceremony and it continues and will lead to the consummation of the marriage. But where we are in this text is their journey to the wedding chamber, the journey to the honeymoon suite. And so what we're doing here is we're being taken into what goes on in a couple's mind as they're preparing to consummate the marriage. Those of you who have done that will remember maybe your first kiss. Well, you may remember the first time. What was going on in your mind as a couple that time? That's basically where this story is. That's what we've read. And what we realize is this woman has some serious issues. In truth, We're talking about a woman here, and I will do throughout this message, but I could be talking about a man. What we see in verse 5 is that she is bringing some of her issues with her into the honeymoon suite. One of her issues that we read here in verses 5 and 6 is her view of her body. By the time we get to chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, she also brings her being her character, who she is into question. So she's questioning her body. She's questioning her being. And his response in all of this is reassuring. Hence the title of today's message, In Body and Being Beautiful. But have a look at the screen. This is how she views herself. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar. Kedar is an ancient nomadic tribe said to have been one of the sons of Ishmael. Like the tent curtains of Solomon. Now, let's stop there. She says that she's dark. 
like the tent curtains of Solomon. So she is darkened by the sun. She's tanned, and she's also as thin as a curtain. We would say maybe as thin as a twig or as a stick. She says she's as thin as a curtain. So go with me on this, this idea of what makes a person beautiful in her mind then. Every culture has an idea of what it's, it's beautiful, right? In Mauritania right now, the, vision, the view of beauty of a woman is that she is short and plump. Believe it or not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, hey, I'm good. I need to move to Mauritania. Um, in the medieval, in the middle, in the medieval ages, it was exactly the same. High neckline, your kind of hair all pulled up, was viewing this kind of protruding forehead, okay, pale as anything, and kind of plump. That's why most of the medieval paintings, you look at a woman and think, she's supposed to be good looking? What? Well, here, this lady has more in view of the med medieval times, in her mind, in the view of beauty, than she does today. In America today, beauty is toned, tanned, and photoshopped, right? Perfect. And if you ain't perfect, then, wow, you just ain't there. And part of the problem for many people today is they're comparing their kind of, their beauty to someone's highlight reel and an artist's Photoshop brush. But this woman has a view of beauty that doesn't include tanned and thin. And she's got a problem with that. She's journeying towards the honeymoon suite, asking herself, is he going to like my body and she's not sure he will so the first thing we're picking up here is that when it comes to consummating a marriage when it comes to intimacy how we feel about our own body is important now here's what researchers tell us researchers will actually tell us that what we consider to be the negative points about our body our partner our spouse usually doesn't hold the same view that's the good news but she doesn't know that so she's journeying to the, towards the honeymoon suite with this negative view of her own body. She's too dark, she's too thin, and she doesn't like it. And what happens when we start to think about why we are the way we are? We want to explain it, don't we? Especially when it comes to someone else. So she explains why she's so dark. She says, don't stare at me because I'm dark. Because I'm darkened by the sun, this is the reason why my mother's sons were angry with me and they made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. My own vineyard, as a result of taking care of their vineyard, literally, my own vineyard, my body, my physical body, that's been neglected. So that's why. So what we understand then, as she journeys towards the honeymoon suite, she is taking her past with her. I'm thrilled to be able to teach this message today for a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is today, Vipka and I celebrate 23 years of marriage. Vipka, I love you. Thank you for sticking with me. But the truth is, if you were here about a month ago during the Messy Church series, as we shared how our opening years of our married life was, what it was like, you recognized and you'll have heard that as we journeyed towards the honeymoon suite that night, we were taking our past with us too. And it didn't take us long to realize that we were both messed up. 
And then when you realize how messed up you both are, you often get into a a relationship where you start to explain why that is. She's explaining why she feels so bad about her own body. It's my brother's fault. They basically, she said, treated me as a slave in my own house. Now, this may seem surprising to you, but it wouldn't have been surprising back then. You see, a single women back then wouldn't be able to live on their own. They would live in their family, and they would live in their family until such a time as they were married off, they would leave their home, they would go into the home of their spouse. So often what would happen in a, in a season like that is that the, the, the girl who was yet to be married would often be treated like a servant in her own home. It, it shouldn't have been that way, but unfortunately, it often was. And so as she journeys into the honeymoon suite, she is just reliving this in her mind, thinking about the fact that, yes, she's got the wedding dress on, and we read the passages right with with all of the jewels. She's got all of the fancy jewelry on with all of the dress, and everybody thinks, oh, doesn't she look wonderful? But in reality, in her own mind, she thinks, I'm anything but. This isn't the way that I pictured it, she's thinking. It should have been a little different, and it's my brother's fault. It's my brother's fault because they basically protected my virginity, but they did nothing to affirm my dignity. I feel unattractive. Now, the book doesn't tell us why she, um, why the, the brothers did this. We don't know why. All we do know from the book itself is by the time we get to chapter 8 and verses 8 and 9, she says what her brothers should have done. Look at the text with me. The brothers, we read, saying, we have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. In other words, she's young. What is the responsibility of these brothers in a home where there is a sister that needs to be protected? What shall we do for our sister on the day that she has spoken for? You see, she's reliving this. If she is a wall, they say, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. They are actually saying we will protect her virginity. She responds, I am a wall. And now my breasts are like towers, and they have become, in his eyes, like one bringing contentment. She says, you did nothing to protect my dignity and my attractiveness. And as a consequence of that, I walked into a marriage relationship with a low self-esteem, with a low sense of self-worth, And it really shouldn't have been like that. She's saying, brothers, your responsibility is not only to protect my virginity, your responsibility is to protect my dignity. And you didn't do it. She's taking her past into her relationship with her. And her past makes her question the attractiveness of her own body. One commentator writes this about this context. As a sister destined to marry and leave the household, she receives the harsh treatment that, she is, other, that is otherwise reserved for slaves. Regarded as a quasi-outsider who consumes the goods of the household, she is forced by her brothers into menial tasks for the common good of the family and, it is, not, and is not free to pursue her own interests. She is forced 
I'm going to back up. She is forced by her brothers into menial tasks for the common good of her own family and is not free to pursue her own interests. What do we have going on here? I spilled the beans. We have an ancient tale of a modern classic. That's why we say over and over again, it isn't right to purely allegorize this. What we have in Psalms chapter 1 is basically an old version of Cinderella. In Cinderella, we have the daughters of a mother treating a young woman unfairly. In Song of Songs, we have sons of a mother treating a daughter unfairly. In Cinderella, we have these daughters and this family putting a young woman to work on the inside. In Songs, we have the family putting a young woman to work on the outside. Of course, in Cinderella, this woman escapes the pain of her past and meets her Prince Charming, and they, of course, live happily ever after. In Song of Songs, in the Bible, we have reality. Happily ever after is a myth. The reality is this young woman takes that pain of that oppression with her into her relationship. And what happens in the rest of the section is that we discover what it takes to overcome the pain of the past, our character defects, and experience eros without shame. Human love it was as it was intended to be. And so the rest of this section deals with overcoming intimacy issues. And these verses suggest that what happens outside the bedroom helps what happens inside of it. They're walking to the chamber. 
She's playing all of these things through in her mind, all of the past. And as they walk to the chamber, these things are starting to be dealt with. And what happens outside of the wedding chamber enables what happens inside of the wedding chamber to be truly fulfilling. And I want to say that everyone who is married knows that this is true. We know that we bring the pain and the parts of our character that have not yet been shaped into our marriage relationships with us. And if the truth be told, we bring it into every relationship with us. Every relationship we enter into functions and is expressed at times through pain. As we painfully deal with and inappropriately deal with the pain of our past. And what we discover here is that anyone who wants any kind of intimacy in a relationship, whether it be emotional or physical, or emotional and physical, needs to be able to demonstrate the attitudes that are typified in this text. And in this text, I want to pick up six attitudes, six that are important for us to manifest and demonstrate in order for us to experience intimacy and human love as God intends it to be. So have a look at the text with me. It begins in verse 6 with an obvious statement, overcoming those things that stop us being intimate with one another takes commitment. It takes commitment. Look at the way that she expresses this. Isaiah 5 says this, my loved one had a vineyard on a, future, on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. What are we seeing here? She says that she worked in a vineyard. From Isaiah 5, we see how much work is involved in taking care of a vineyard. It is a lot of work. What we see is that overcoming the issues of the past that we bring into our relationships with us takes a commitment. It takes hard work. The way that I say this is the hard, the hard work is the heart work. It takes that resolve on the inside. What we see from Isaiah 5 is that taking care of a vineyard involves digging ditches clearing stones, planting vines, building a watchtower, taking out a wine vat, picking the grapes. And so the point we, we recognize is the commitment needed to grow good grapes is the commitment needed to grow the intimacy in the marriage. Intimacy doesn't just happen. Intimacy doesn't just happen. It's hard work. And the longer you're with someone and the more you know someone, often the more commitment it takes because you really know them. And so what I want to say as we begin this is that when you stood in the, at the altar with your bride, Vipka and I, 23 years ago today, and we looked at one another and we said, I do, what we were committing to was for our two lives to become one, for our two dreams to become one, for the two paths that had led us to this point, to be led out of that church as one people. And we stand there realizing what Brad said last week, that marriage is the symbol, that what is divided can be united through God and in His grace. But folks, it takes hard work. And the more painful your past, 
the harder the work is. My encouragement to you, don't quit. Now there's a reality here. It not only takes commitment, it also takes courage. As you start to look at verses seven and eight, she's reminiscing about her past. The fact that she was attracted to him, drawn to him. And then naturally as the relationship goes on, she wants to spend time with him. How does she spend time with him? Well, she basically would work in the fields. And as she's working in the fields, people would say to her, well, it's pretty easy. You work in the fields. Just go cover yourself up, kind of act like a shepherd, and just go mingle with the shepherds and go spend time with them. This is what they say. Tell me, you whom I love, where you gaze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should, I, why should I be like a veiled woman besides the flocks of your friends? And then the response comes back. If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. People are advising her to actually go back to the, the very fields, to be in that very place that has caused her so much pain. She's obviously uncomfortable around men. Why? Because men have mistreated her. And now all of a sudden, in order to spend time with him, she has to go back to the source of her pain? Do you know how hard that is? And there's the lesson for us. It doesn't just take commitment to make marriages work and make relationships work. It takes courage. Because going back to the source of your pain is a very hard thing to do. What does courage look like in your relationships right now? In your marriage relationship, in your friendships, what does courage look like? Because for true intimacy to happen in a relationship, courage is necessary. Without courage, you see, commitment is staying together for the sake of the kids. With courage, commitment is we're going to get through this, and whatever is stopping us from being united will be overcome. It takes courage. What does courage look like for you? For many people in our country right now, courage basically means, like this woman, being very comfortable with the color of their own skin. Many of them don't. And it takes courage to feel comfortable. And for some of you here, courage may well be recognizing that we have to deal with this issue, and I have to acknowledge this issue, and I'm going to deal with this issue, and I'm going to acknowledge this issue. But without courage, the past is never overcome. What does courage look like for you? For this woman, it was going back to the source of her pain. She was willing to do it. Are you willing to demonstrate that courage to get through your pain? The intimacy of your relationship demands it. And so it starts with commitment, and then you realize we need courage. But then it moves on to celebration. I love verses 9 and following. In this moment, it's as if he knows her already. He starts to talk about how incredible she is. Not just because she's dressed in what we would call that white dress and adorned and carrying all of these jewels, but because of who she is. And so he begins to celebrate her. Celebration is really important to intimacy. And again, the more celebration there is outside of the honeymoon suite, the better the celebration is inside of it. What's interesting is he celebrates her in a rather unusual way, doesn't he? He compares her to a horse. 
Whenever I, whenever I read that, and I think loving a horse, loving a horse, what is the modern image of loving a horse? This is what I see. Did he really show a Budweiser beer commercial in church? Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I did. Um, talk about pushing it in this series, right? Listen, it's our anniversary today. Vipka, I give you this promise. I will not compare you with a Clydesdale. That, that wouldn't go down very well, would it? But he does. And he does it for a reason, and it's not really clear in the text. In verse 9, we read, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. What the Hebrew says here is the word chariots, chariot here is plural, not singular. So it's Pharaoh's chariots. The horses that we have at the end is added in the English version. What it literally says in the Hebrew is, I liken you, my darling, to a, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots, period. Ancient Egyptian artwork reveals that Pharaoh's chariots were adorned with incredible jewels. There were all of these chariots that the Roman military used to have, but the mare on Pharaoh's chariots stood out from the rest. She was a one and only. That's what he's saying. You stand out from the rest. And he celebrates the fact that out of all of the people in this world, God had ordained it for her to be his. And that's what he's celebrating. And I can tell you this, celebration, positive affirmation, when someone is struggling with the pain of their past, is critical for progress in any relationship. So there's a commitment, but commitment only takes you so far. Commitment in a marriage when there's issues looks like, okay, we're going to stay together for the sake of the kids. But every Christ follower shouldn't be content with that. So they put on courage, and they say, you know what? We're going to courageously tackle these things. And as you start to tackle these things, the problems start to, to be dealt with. It becomes uncomfortable. And in the midst of that kind of battle, you pause and you say, let's celebrate. Out of all of the people in the world, God has chosen us to be together. Celebration. I love this. The next part of the text, it goes on to talk about the importance of conviction. 
See, because no matter how much you celebrate, no matter how much progress you make, invariably something will happen where one of you or the other one, okay, will do something stupid that will lead to a stupid response. And no sooner have you done that than you think, we haven't made any progress at all. I thought we dealt with this 15 years ago. And you're bringing this up again now? You ever been there? Can I've been there? And in that moment, when you think you're making progress, and all of a sudden the old issue comes up all over again, in that moment, commitment won't do it anymore because you've demonstrated commitment for 15 years. You've taken that courageous step. You've celebrated over and over again, and there it is again. And see, in your mind, you start to think, is this really worth it? We're never going to get there. And what I love in, in this section of the text is it talks about conviction. See, because this couple were getting married in ancient poetry in a worldview that was very different to the worldview that God held. And listen, if you're getting married today and you've been married for 10, 15 years, then you're married in a worldview that is very different to what it was when your parents were growing up and even when you were young. And the worldview today basically says, look, if it's not working, just quit. If you know you've done everything you can to make this thing right and you've demonstrated your commitment, you've courageously tackled the problem, you've celebrated whenever you can and it's just not working, that's fine, just quit. What happens in this section of the text is these people say, yeah, the worldview that we live in is very different to the worldview that God has for our relationship and we have the conviction not to quit. Look at the text. The text says this. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. Our bed is verdant. Now, whenever you hear, see a word like verdant, okay, in a modern translation, which is supposed to be paraphrased and therefore making it easier for you, any of you know what verdant means? Usually there's some kind of hidden meaning behind this, some kind of cultural context that is really important for helping us understand what's going on. This word verdant, matched with the next sentence, the beams of our house are cedars, are rafters, are firs, fir trees, okay, and this kind of stuff. The word verdant together with trees has a meaning in the Old Testament. It has a cultural context. In week number one, I said this book is birthed in that Canaanite Worldview. The Canaanites believed in group sex. They basically believed that promiscuity and sexual activity, free eros, eros, what we would say is shameless eros, was actually so important that it would take you closer to the gods. And so what people would do is they would take altars, make altars in the forests where the trees are. These trees were lush and green, and temple prostitutes would be waiting there for people to basically commit adultery. This is the context. Now, I want to give you a couple of scriptures for this. Have a look at this. The word vedant, okay, means, uh, is ranan. It means luxuriant, fresh, green, or very green. It always occurs, as I've said, with trees. And that meaning has a cultural meaning at the time this book was written. Scriptures for it. Destroy completely, God says, all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree. There's that word vedant again. Every spreading, luxurious, green tree. 
okay? Where the nations you were dispossessing, dispossessing worship their gods. Ah, they worship God in the middle of the forest, and in there there's something that happens. Jeremiah chapter 2 tells us. Long ago you broke off your yoke and you tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. This is the people to God. Indeed, on every high hill and under there, you have it again, okay? Every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. You get in the cultural context here. The worldview is one of promiscuity, free love, shameless eros. But the Bible calls us to eros without shame. The Bible calls us to work hard and to go back to the original mandate given in Eden, where those things that are divided at any point in any relationship can actually be made one again. Don't quit. It's a conviction. But God's people abandoned it. And so Jeremiah goes on saying this. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone, on, uh, gone up on every high hill and under, there we go again, every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all of this, she would return to me, but she hasn't. And her unfaithful sister, Judah, saw it. So we're talking about the northern kingdom here, Israel. And now we're even talking about the southern kingdom, Judah. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away. That's the exile. Assyrian exile for Israel. And I did it because all of her adulteries. This wasn't just... Uh, in a sense, spiritual adultery to God. This is also physical adultery through worship that involves sexual promiscuity. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her. She defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. The same thing. In spite of all of this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all of her heart, but only in pretense declares the Lord. You see what's going on here? You have a people who recognized how important God was to their past. They recognized that God had brought them through the Reed Sea, the Red Sea. He brought them through the desert. He led them into the land. They were thankful for it. But they figured that their sexual ethics could actually be lived out and still be thankful. And so God says these people came into, these, into the holy places, they would worship me, but it wasn't real because they liked their sexual freedoms more than they actually liked my order of life and relationships. That's the context here. And so when we read in chapter one of Songs that their bed is verdant, they are basically saying, we are entering into this relationship, into this marriage relationship, into this honeymoon suite, committed to keeping the marriage bed pure. We're committed to take courage, to deal with the issues that may force to drive us apart. We will, as hard as it is, celebrate the fact that out of everyone in this world, God has given us each other but we will also live with that conviction that even though the world outside us views very different to ours and even in those days when life gets tough and it, the easiest thing to do we think is to quit, we are convicted we will not. I hope you see this. Sometimes it's possible to read a, a word, the dant, and think, what on earth does that mean? And skip over it, but it means so much. This couple was convicted in the core of their being that marriage is that sign that that which has been divided will be united. And in a marriage relationship, 
there is that conviction not to quit, to work on it, and to keep working on it. And so next, after this, we get into chapter 2. We've seen commitment and courage. We've seen celebration. We've seen this conviction after a setback to keep on going. And this part is really important. It takes composure, especially after a setback. In this portion of the, of the text, she refers to herself as a Rose of Sharon. And it sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? It's as if he's doing an awful lot to deal with the pain of the past, and he is. But she's not quite there yet. You see, while a Rose of Sharon seems to be such a, a great description, the reality is there were many of them. She just sees herself as one of many. In verse 4 of chapter 1, she says that part of her problem is she feels so badly about herself, and all of these other women think that he is so great. So in this part of the text, she feels that she is just one of many. What's well, a little bit better than what it was, but it's not great. We'll get to that in a moment. O'Donnell writes this about these words. She's a natural beauty, and she knows that. Even in verse, four, verse 5 rather, of chapter 1, she says, I am dark, and then we put a comma in there, yet lovely. Just like Cinderella as she's singing that song, she feels in a hopeless situation. But as she looks into that little bubble, you see her doing something with her hair. She recognizes that there is a beauty in her that is yet to come out. And we see that. She's a natural beauty. She knows that. She doesn't have this negative self-image at this point that is all too common today. Rather, she is, has a realistic self-assessment. She's not, get this, emotionally oversensitive. She's emotionally sensible. She's lovely, and she's like a lily. At this point, she's just calm. What are you like after a setback in a relationship? Are you emotionally sensible? or emotionally oversensitive? That's really the question, right? If there's this conviction that we're gonna do God's thing, even when it's the hard thing to do, then it is so important to keep your composure because it is so easy to lose it. What typifies you when you're frustrated? Emotional stability or emotional instability? I believe that what God wants to do in many of our relationships is after a setback, He wants the Spirit of God to be able to do the work of keeping us composed. That's important because there's often a time of correction that's needed. In verse 2, having heard this kind of realistic assessment of what she thinks about herself, this guy offers a correction. He says, wait a minute, you're not simply the rose of Sharon. You are the rose among thorns. He reminds her of how incredible she is. There is that word of correction. One commentator, Garrett, says this about these words. In light of this response, it is fairly clear that her claim of being, to being a rose of Sharon does, not des uh, does describe her as one among many flowers. 
But for him, she is not one flower, however good that may be. She is she the, own, the one and only, the lotus. It goes without saying that these words imply that he is devoted to her. His declaration also has monogamous implications. She is the only flower and he loves only her. The point is he offers a word of correction. Han, I know you think this way, but there's something that you need to see. I think this is one of the most important points for dealing with the pain of the past, is allowing our spouse or the people closest to us to speak words of correction and to stay calm when they do it. To speak words of correction and actually not flip out when they do it. Or when they speak a word of correction, not to remind them that there are more things wrong with them than there is with you. The old saying goes, when someone reminds you of what's wrong, points the finger at you and reminds you of what's wrong with them, tell them that there are three fingers pointing back at them. Often when you're in a relationship and, and there comes a need for correction, it is so easy to flip out. But what we're discovering here is we need, if we're going to work through the pain of the past and experience eros without shame, love without shame, then we need to be able to receive a word of correction. And again, the question comes, how well do you receive the word of correction? And, and what do you need to do to cultivate being able to receive a word of correction into your life. Because it's hard to do it. Especially after you, everything's been going so well. You hit a setback. Okay, you got this conviction. Okay, it'd be easy to quit right now, but I'm not going to quit. You kind of stay calm through it. And then he actually tells you what's wrong with you. Oh, boy. What do you need, what do, you need to do in your own life to cultivate a heart that says... I will listen to the truth, no matter whose mouth it comes out of. One of the things that is a real privilege to me is, is in my life is, is being involved in, in church ministry. I love the local church. One of the pains in my life is being involved in the local church. Sometimes there are times when I loathe the local church because everybody's got an opinion. Everybody. And some people are really good at telling you that. And some people are so good at telling you that, they'll even leave their name off a letter when they actually write it to you. And so when that happened to me first time, I, I turned to a pastor friend of mine and I said, what do I do with letters that are sent to me and that they don't put their name on it? You know? And so the advice that I received was, well, if they're not man or woman enough to put their name on it, you don't have to read it. Oh, cool, Bennett. And then I was reading through the scriptures, and I came to the passage where, where God uses a donkey to speak to the prophet Balaam. And something stirs. And then I read First Chronicles chapter 28, where God uses a witch to speak to the prophet. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, if God uses a donkey and a witch, could he not possibly use a disaffected member of my church? Maybe I need to listen to it. Now, I don't like the, 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 the kind of progression with this, donkey, witch, all of you. That's kind of not where I'm going with that. But I just realized in, in this one thing, in, in this one practice, there could be something that I could do to actually make sure that I was willing to receive a word of correction. So here's what I do. When these things come in, I will go to uh, a team of people and just say, okay, guys, I know that there are so many things, right, that are wrong with this thing. 
but can you tell me the one thing that's right? What's the one thing that I need to listen to that God may be telling me on this? And so for years, that's what I've done. Honestly, it's hard. But I've just recognized, unless I take proactive steps to cultivate a heart that is open to correction, it's going to be really hard to receive that kind of correction from my wife or even sometimes from my kids. This is the hard part of making the kind of changes that are necessary to get our relationships right. This is the hard work, and it's hard because it's about the heart. This kind of intimacy that probably I hope every married couple wants for their relationship. Physical uh, intimacy, yes, but emotional intimacy, even more so, is only going to happen if we're willing to change. How does change happen in your life? And what do you need to do in order to cultivate a heart that is open to listen to the one word that a spouse, a friend, a co-worker, even a stranger on the street may say to you and you receive it? What needs to happen? God's desire for our relationships is that we experience eros without shame that we experience the joy of unity as there was in the Garden of Eden. That's his goal. God's design for our marriage relationships is that we experience increasingly that what was once divided is now united. And I believe that God wants to do a great work in all of us. And my prayer is that these attitudes that I've talked about today, the commitment, the courage, the celebration, the conviction, the composure, And then lastly, the correction will result in communication happening in your relationships through this week. Marriage relationships and friendships that will result in you experiencing eros without shame to an even greater degree. And as you do this, just recognize the world in which we live, just like the world in which this poem was birthed, has a very different worldview. They hold very different convictions. There will be advice that you will receive to quit while you're still ahead. But what we know is that God delights in taking that which was divided and making them one. May that be your experience increasingly this week. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that your Holy Spirit would just do a work of sealing what was from you to each and every heart. There have been many words that have been spoken today, Father, but I pray that the one word that is the word that each heart needs to hear, would be sealed, would be watered, and would grow in our lives so that you get the glory. Father, we all know that we bring our past into our present, and I just want to pray that our past will get smaller as the glory and the vision of the future gets brighter. And I pray, Father, that we will increasingly experience marriage relationships that are free and that are full, where intimacy emotionally and physically is truly experienced, and the glory goes to you as a result. So, Father, may you do the work that only you can do. Take us further than we are right now, for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name. God's people said.
Amen. Stand with us as we just dismiss with a prayer of blessing. I remind you this Friday evening, there is again the marriage evening that we're doing. Myself, Pastor Brad, uh, Sarah Young, a counselor in the, the community, she will be there. It's going to be a great evening, $10 per couple. You can sign up for that online. It's going to be an exciting evening. But friends and family of Central, go from this place today, having received the grace of God again in your heart, and go from this place and in your relationships your marriages, your friendships with your work colleagues. Be willing to give grace upon grace. And may the God of peace go with you. Amen. Have a great week, folks. See you all next week.